All right. Well, I want to greet everyone who's joining us today through our online campus. Thanks so much for worshiping with us. Uh, It's a great joy to be able to open up the Bible and spend some time together with you today. If you got your Bible handy, go ahead and take it and turn with me once again uh, to the book of Romans, chapter 12. And we're going to conclude our study this weekend called The Look of Love, which, as you know, more than anything else, has just been a verse-by-verse study or a verse-by-verse journey through Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, where Paul shows us, and I've said this over and over again over the last six weeks, what love is supposed to look like in our lives as believers as we live in this world. Now, I want to just dive right into the study this morning, and so if you've got your Bibles open there to Romans chapter 12, you follow along as I read our passage. Paul writes and says, "'Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good.'" Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then finally, the last verse, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There it is. We always ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. One of the many interesting things that I have learned as a preacher over the past many years is how easy it is for some Christians, and I'm not making this up. This is all based on real conversations but how easy it is for some Christians to rationalize or conclude that there are certain parts of the Bible that just don't apply to them. Let me give you some examples. Uh, One would be when it comes to forgiveness, forgiving someone who has hurt you. Some Christians believe that the hurt or the offense that they have suffered is so great that it somehow gives them a pass when it comes to forgiving whoever it is that hurt them. Even in the face of verses like Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, where Paul writes and says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. And then he adds these words, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, I want you to listen to me close. I'm in no way minimizing someone's hurt or someone's pain or someone's loss. I know that sometimes we do horrific things to one another. I would never minimize that. But I really don't see any wiggle room in the verses of the Bible that talk about our responsibility to forgive others. Another example would be in the area of generosity. When Paul instructed the Corinthian church to give, he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7 these words, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He started off by saying each man. That's a pretty inclusive statement. Each man should give. In the chapter before that, he cites the example of the Macedonian churches when it comes to giving. 
He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2 these words, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He said that these churches had extreme poverty and yet they were still able to be generous. And so the Bible makes it clear that generosity is not based on what you have, it's based on your heart, it's based on your commitment to being a good steward of whatever it is God has entrusted to you, whether it's a little or a lot. No one is excluded. How about one more example? You would be shocked to know the number of conversations, <coughs> excuse me, I've had with Christians who have fallen into the trap of infidelity. I'm talking about Christians who have committed adultery. And then in a subsequent conversation, they've said something to me like this. This is about the inappropriate relationship. Me and God have an understanding about this. In spite of the fact that the Bible is pretty clear that that's never going to be the case. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And folks, I could go on and on and give you more examples, but I'll stop right there. And just so we're clear and uh, I'm talking about you and me right now, just so we're clear, while you and me, while we might not be guilty of any of these things I've just mentioned, every one of us are guilty of rationalizing disobedience to God, at least on some level in some area of our lives. I certainly know that I am. Look at these words on the screen from James chapter 4 and verse 17. He writes and says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. And that verse pretty much captures all of us, again, at least on some level. Now, the reason why I share that is because as powerful as Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 21 is, or at least as powerful as it should be in our lives as believers, I can look at these verses and see the possibility that someone could come along and say, yeah, you know, that particular teaching, that's not for me, at least not every part of it. I I was trying to figure out a simple way to understand what Paul is teaching us about love in this passage, and I read something in John MacArthur's commentary on the book of Romans that I thought was helpful. He basically kind of presented the idea that you can understand this passage by, first of all, drawing a small circle and then writing the word me inside the circle. Because basically, and I've shared this with you every week when we've opened up our Bibles, Romans chapter 12, when it comes to the love that God wants to see demonstrated in our lives, it all begins with each one of us. And so that's why you could write the word me in there. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, the first part of the verse verse says, love must be sincere. And so before we really are able to live out the kind of love that God wants us to demonstrate, live out in our lives, we got to make sure that that love is sincere, that it's genuine, that's real. We don't want to be hypocritical. And then he goes on to say that you could draw another circle a little, bit, a little bit larger outside of the smaller one that has the word me, and inside, or inside that circle, you could just write the words, the family of God. Because as you move on from verse 9 in Romans chapter 12, and you continue to understand the passage, Paul teaches us that our, as our love begins to work its way out in the world, it starts by our willingness and our 
understanding of the need to love one another in the family of God. And so you could draw a, another circle a little bit larger and you could write in that circle, the family of God. That's our responsibility to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans chapter 10 or 12 and verse 10, the first part of the verse says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And then finally, you could draw still another circle a little bit larger outside of the first two. And inside that circle, you could write the words, the world dash even our enemies. Because as our love continues to work its way out in the world, we have this responsibility to show love to everyone, everyone, even our enemies. Romans twelve fourteen says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And from there, through the end of the passage, the Apostle Paul pretty much hits on that theme the rest of the way, the theme of loving everyone, even people who persecute you, even people who would be your enemies. Another way to understand the passage would be to come to the very end, and that's Romans 12, 21. That's the verse that we're talking about today. Paul ends the passage by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, and asking the question, how do you overcome evil with good? And you could answer the question by saying, by doing everything Paul has written about in the preceding verses, which would be verses 9 through 20. But here's the question. However we choose to understand this passage, however we choose to remember it, Here's the question. How how many of us are genuinely interested in obeying these words in our lives today? And when I say today, I'm literally talking about today as in right now. Today, right now, where we live, in the middle of all the difficult days we're experiencing in our country with all of the fear and all of the uncertainty and all of the racial and civil unrest and all of the highly charged political climate that surrounds us. I'm talking about right now where everywhere you look, all you see is anger and bitterness and mistrust and division and I could go on and on and on. How many of us are genuinely willing to live Romans 12 lives, Romans 12 verses 9 through 21 lives right now in the middle of all that surrounds us, right now in this messed up world. I can see somebody saying, doesn't the unrest and the uncertainty of the world that we're living in today, doesn't that excuse us from living out these words? I hope you know the answer is no. I thought it might be a little interesting, and this last message in our series is going to be a little different than the previous ones. I thought it might be interesting to get a little bit of a historical reference for Paul's words here in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. During the first 70 years of the first century, there were five Roman emperors who ruled. First of all, there was Augustus. Uh, We actually read about Augustus in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. He's referenced in the Bible, and these are familiar words to most Christians. I have read these words every Christmas morning for as long as I can remember, because as Luke wrote the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, it begins with these words, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
Now, Caesar Augustus was one of ancient Rome's most successful leaders who actually led what might be viewed as a transformation of Rome from a republic to an empire. And during his reign, he restored peace and prosperity to the Roman state. Nearly every aspect of Roman life was changed under his leadership. Next, there was the emperor Tiberius. Tiberius is also referenced in the Bible. He's also referenced in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, that verse begins with these words. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Now, I'm going to stop right there. I'm not going to read the entire verse because it's a lengthy verse. And basically, it's a verse that just sets up the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Christ. But literally, it says, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. The 15th year of Tiberius would have been 29 A.D., Tiberius was a leader who was primarily known for his military achievements. And by the way, Tiberius was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. Next, there's the emperor Caligula. He followed Tiberius and led the Roman Empire for four traumatic years. Just six months months into his reign, Caligula suffered some kind of illness that seemed to transform him completely from who he was into a tyrant who seemed to be slowly losing his mind. He ordered altars to be built to himself. The Roman historian Suetonius writes that Caligula ordered all the images of the gods to be brought from Greece, that he might take the heads off of them and substitute his own head on each one of the altars or each one of the statues. He built a temple in his own honor. He commissioned priests in his own honor in the honor of what he decided would be his own divinity. In his temple, he built a statue of gold that was the exact image of himself. And every single day, that statue was dressed in clothing corresponding with the clothing that he wore on the same day. It's said that Caligula's excess and indulgence knew no bound. He was notorious for his orgies in the imperial palace. And those four years were a nightmare for Rome There was widespread relief when Caligula was finally assassinated by two of his own bodyguards. Next, there was the Roman Roman Emperor Claudius. He was number four. Claudius is referenced in the Bible. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, if you study Claudius' life, you can read some interesting things about him, but for the most part, he was a good emperor who brought much-needed relief to the Roman Empire after the reign of Caligula. He did this primarily through restoring the rule of law, something that Caligula largely ignored. And then finally, the fifth Roman emperor during the first 70 years of the first century was Nero. Nero came to power at the age of 18. He ruled for 14 years until he committed suicide at the age of 32. There are two basic fundamental things to know about Nero. He was a man of extraordinary cruelty, and he was a man of extraordinary, extraordinary perversion. He was best known for his political murders, his sexual depravity, and ultimately for the persecution of Christians. I read this week that his entire life was one continued scene of lewdness, sensuality, cruelty, and folly. There's a lot more I could say about him, but we need to move on. Corresponding to these Roman 
emperors and the years they reigned, here are some key dates for the early church during that same time. The day of Pentecost, or Pentecost happens in 33 A.D. I don't know if you're familiar with what I'm talking about when I say Pentecost or the day of Pentecost, but you can read about it in Acts chapter 2. This is the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, on the apostles, and this was the day that the church was born. I've told you before that you could take the book of Acts, which is pretty much the history book of the New Testament, and you could divide it into a three-point outline. In chapter 1, Jesus goes up. That's where we read about his ascension back to glory. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down. That happened on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And chapter 3, through the end of the book, which is chapter 28, the church or the believers go out. Jesus goes up. The Holy Spirit comes down and the believers go out. That's an easy way to understand the book of Acts. Well, after the day of Pentecost, after the church began, the book of Acts covers pretty much the next 30 years of history, and those 30 years are set against the backdrop of these three emperors, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. The next event would be that in the winter of 56 to 57 AD, the Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans, the book that we've been studying for the last several weeks. He writes the book of Romans while he's in the city of Corinth. And what I want you to remember, what I want you to know, is that when Paul wrote the book of Romans, Nero was the emperor at the time. I got to tell you that I just feel compelled, friends, I just literally feel compelled by God to pause here and talk about that for just a moment. Not so much in this moment in the context of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, although that's important. It's important to understand that Nero was the emperor when Paul wrote those words. But I want to talk about it for just a moment in the context of the very next thing that Paul wrote in the book of Romans, which is our Romans chapter 13. If you've got your Bible open still, Romans chapter 12, look down to the beginning of chapter 13. Because right after our passage ends, this passage about love, what love is supposed to look like as we live our lives as believers in this world, Paul goes on to write these words, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Paul wrote those words when Nero was the emperor of Rome. And remember, Nero was a man I just read a moment ago whose life was one continued scene of lewdness, sensuality, cruelty, and folly. He was known for the persecution of Christians. I don't have time to tell you how perverse a man he was when he was the ruler of the Roman Empire. But Paul wrote these words about submission to government when Nero was the one who was in charge. That's amazing to me. And something you and I really need to think about when we get exercised about how difficult life is or can be or might be or whatever's going through your mind under different kinds of leaders. Shortly after the book of Romans was written, false charges were brought against Paul by the people in Caesarea who basically wanted 
him to stop preaching the gospel. And Paul, knowing that he couldn't get a fair trial in Caesarea, says, this is recorded in Acts 25 and verse 11, I appeal to Caesar. And because Paul was a Roman citizen, arrangements were made for Paul to travel to Rome where he would literally appear before Caesar. You can read about that in Acts chapter 25 and Acts chapter 26. You can read about his travel to Rome in Acts chapter 27. His travel invited and included rather a a lot of difficulty and a shipwreck. The third thing I would mention is that sometime around 60 AD, Paul actually arrives in Rome. You can read about that in the very last chapter of the book of Acts, which is Acts chapter 28. Paul arrives in Rome and we're told that he stayed there under house arrest for about two years. That would be 60 and 61 AD. And after that, it appears that he was released. Three years later now, 64 AD, the city of Rome is set on fire. Let me just read to you for a moment from my notes. The Roman historian Tacitus records that of the 14 precincts of the city, only four were undamaged. Three were utterly destroyed, and in, and, me, and in the other seven, there remained only a few mangled and half-burnt traces of houses. Tacitus records, at the very time that Rome burned, he, Nero, mounted his private stage and sang. This is where we get the phrase, fiddling while Rome burns. It was widely rumored that Nero himself had started the fire and that he had done this to create the opportunity of building a greater and grander city. Nero needed to find a scapegoat, so he blamed the fire on the Christians. The Roman historian Tacitus, who was no friend of Christians, once again records the events for us. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the most utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, Christ, from whom they got their name, had been executed by sentence of the procurator, or yes, excuse me, procurator Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor. First, then, those who confessed themselves Christians were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, a vast multitude were convicted. I want you to listen to what I'm going to read next. Not so much on the charge of arson as for the hatred of the human race. I'm going to go back and read that again. I want you to listen to this carefully. First, then, those who confessed themselves Christians were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, a vast multitude were convicted. Not so much on the charge of arson as for hatred of the human race. You see what's happening here? You see what's being said? What's being said against the Christians is not that they were being arrested because Nero wanted to use them as scapegoats for arson. That's not what they were being charged with. They were being charged with the fact that they hated the human race. Or in other words, they were being charged with the fact that they did not fit with where the culture was going, and so they were branded haters. Their lives were so distinctly different from the rest of the world that when they were arrested, they were branded as haters. Tacitus goes on to write, their death was made a matter of sport. They were covered in wild beast skins and torn to pieces by dogs or were fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve as torches by night when daylight failed. 
Hence there arose a feeling of pity because it was felt that they were being sacrificed not for the common good, but to gratify the savagery of one man, and that one man was Nero. I don't know if you picked this up in the middle of what I was sharing, but did you notice how quickly the world changed for Christians in early days? About five years before the city of Rome burned and Christians were held responsible, Paul had been arrested for preaching the gospel in Caesarea, but Paul could say, I appeal to Caesar, knowing that even under the leadership of a bad emperor, he could count on a Roman court to uphold his freedom to speak, his freedom to preach the gospel. But just in just a handful of years, no more than five years, the system of justice had so collapsed, so completely collapsed against Christians that they were now being thrown to lions for sport. Why do I mention all of this? For this reason, and I want you to listen to me so closely. When you, when we, find ourselves saying things like, our world is in deep trouble, or our freedoms are under threat, or everything we've ever known, or everything we've ever believed about morality or about right and wrong is just being swept away in front of our eyes, or just the entire world has gone crazy, this is what we need to remember. Followers of Jesus have been here before. The church has been here before. And the words that Paul wrote that we've been studying for the last six weeks, the words of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, were written to believers who were living in many ways in much more perilous times than you and I have ever experienced in our lives. Much more perilous times than what we're living in today. And so our commitment as believers is to believe in and live out the instructions of Paul about love in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, regardless of anything else. And that's how we protect ourselves from being overcome by evil, and that's how we overcome evil with good, which is what Paul writes in Romans 9 and verse 21. So let me just leave you with these three challenges. If we're really going to do this, if we're really going to be Romans 12 verses 9 through 21 believers, then the first thing we need to do, and this is the first challenge, is we all need to check our own hearts. I go back to how the passage begins in Romans 12, 9, in the first part of the verse where Paul says, love must be sincere. He goes on to say, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. We need to check our hearts and make sure that our love for God which is what motivates our love for others is genuine and sincere in our hearts. It's easy over the course of time to become jaded and slanted and cynical even about matters of the Christian faith and matters of love. We all need to get down on our face in front of God and we need to pour out our hearts and just ask God to help us check our own motivation, check our own love and the sincerity of our faith. The second thing we need to do, and this is the second challenge, is we need to love one another in the family of God because we need one another in the family of God. We need to love one another in the family of God because we need one another in the family of God. 
And I go back to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, the first part of verse 10. He said, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you, and I'm not an alarmist, but I really do believe this is a critical time for the church. It's been over six months since all of us either had the freedom of meeting together or felt the freedom to meet together. And who knows how much longer it will last. Right now, there's a lot of speculation among pastors and leaders and church consultants and the like about what the future is going to look like for the church. And most people are saying that they believe that there's a pretty good percentage of people who will probably never, ever come back to the church to worship in person. That's a deeply, deeply troubling thought to me. I read a very open and honest blog this past week that was simply called Church After COVID-19, Why Bother Going Back? Toward the end of the blog, the author wrote, and I'll just read directly from my notes, according to James K.A. Smith in his excellent book, You Are What You Love, our physical participation has consequences that may be imperceptible now, but these add up to something significant. Our habitual acts shape our lives. Our loves shape what we become. And he goes on to say, in order to cultivate virtue, we must immerse ourselves in practices that inscribe them in our heart over time. And friends, I believe that's what church does. That's not the only thing church does, but it's an important thing that church does. Being together in church allows that to happen because being together in church gives us the opportunity to participate in a very special part of God's story with other believers who are just like us. It feeds our souls. It reminds us that fellowship with God means fellowship with his family. It gives us the opportunity to see and participate in the way God shares his grace in the lives of other people. And it gives them the opportunity to see how God shares his grace in our lives as well gives us a weekly reminder to be, uh, excuse me, a weekly opportunity to be reminded of and to share our allegiance to Christ together. Listen, over the years, I've heard it all. I've heard all the arguments about why church isn't that important or why you don't need church to be a Christian and on and on and on and on. And while I'm not ever going to argue those statements with anybody, not really, I'll have a discussion, but while I'm not ever going to really argue those statements with anybody, I don't think that anything could be further from the truth. Is the church perfect? No. Does the church have faults and flaws and even sometimes ugly missteps? Yes, absolutely. But that's because the church is filled with broken people, and that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. Because listen, I'm going to tell you something I believe with all my heart. A church without broken people is a broken church. The church doesn't exist for perfect people. It exists for broken people. Like you and me. And what we are here at Mount Pleasant, along with all of our impact campuses, is we're a spiritual family. And because we're a spiritual family, we need each other. I have an emptiness that I feel in my heart because of my separation from so many of you. I'm thankful for this opportunity, but I can't tell you how much I miss seeing you and being in fellowship with you face to face. 
The third challenge is this. As we live our lives in this world, we need to meet every challenge and every challenging person with love. A huge part of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, beginning with verse 14, is all about loving your enemies, even to the point of people who, of loving people who persecute you. But let's just make it more practical. It's about loving people who have a different opinion than you. People who look different than you. It's about loving people who vote different than you. Who have a different belief about masks than you. And on and on and on. Paul concludes the passage... By writing, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And it's good when we live lives that are marked by love. But that takes genuine spiritual maturity. And here's what I want you to understand about spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is inseparably linked to humility. And God honors humility. That's why the Bible says in more than one place, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so it takes humility to love someone who is your enemy, who has a different opinion than you, is going to cast a different vote than you, believes different things about masks and all the other things associated with COVID-19 than you, and on and on and on. And so the question of whether or not we're going to be Romans 12 people, we're going to be Romans 12, 9 through 21 people is really more of a question that goes like this. Are we going to be people of humility? But the kind of humility that it requires to love someone who is not exactly like us. I believe God will honor that kind of humility, that kind of commitment, and I believe God will use it ultimately to change lives and change the world. I want you to pray with me. Father, thank you for a chance to talk about these things today. Thank you for this entire study, all that we have seen, all that we have learned. Help us to have the humility to be the people that you call us to be, even in the most difficult and challenging circumstances. Thank you for the example of Christians who have gone before us, who lived lives of love under circumstances much more difficult than anything we've ever experienced. Bless our church family. Bring us back together someday at the right time to be a church that wants to change the world for Christ, one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. In Jesus' name, amen.